0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Michael Berry. He's the editor of the Musha Incident, a reader on the indigenous uprising in colonial Taiwan. This book was published by Columbia University Press. In 2022. This book brings together leading scholars to provide new perspectives on one of the most dramatic episodes in Taiwan's modern history and its fraught legacies, that is, the Muxia Incident in 1930. Over the ensuing decades, the Muxia Incident has been seen as a central moment in Taiwan's colonial history and different political regimes and movements have seized on it for various purposes. Contributors from a variety of disciplines revisit the Moshe incident and its afterlife in history, literature, film, art, and popular culture. They unravel the complexities surrounding it by confronting a history of exploitation, contradiction, and misunderstandings. The book also features conversations with influential cultural figures in Taiwan who have attempted to tell the stories of the uprising. That's the brief introduction of the book. And now let's hear more from the editor. Michael, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Li Ping. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk more about this project with you.
1: Thank you for being on the show. And first of all, Michael, can you introduce yourself and also tell us about your research interest?
0: Sure. I'm a uh, professor of contemporary Chinese cultural studies at UCLA, where I've been for the last six years. Before that, I was at UC Santa Barbara for about 13 years. And my areas, are they, they cover a lot of different, different perspectives. I work on contemporary Chinese language literature, uh, Chinese cinema popular culture. I've done a lot of work in translation, uh, also oral history. And so uh, there's a lot of different directions in which my research branches out into. And I try to kind of have a balance between academic scholarship, oral history projects, and literary translation.
1: All right, so um, thank you for sharing that. And um, so one of the books that you translated is actually about the Musha incident and I believe we will talk more about it later and maybe also uh, you can read a passage or two from there. But before all that, so what is Musha incident? So can you tell us a little bit about the time, location, and exactly what? What and why that happened?
0: Yes. So uh, often in English, what's called the uh, Musha Incident in Chinese, it's referred to as the Musha Shijian. And it's a historical moment from the Japanese colonial period in Taiwan. And it was a major insurrection, a conflict between uh, members of the indigenous population and the Japanese colonial forces. It really came to a head on October 27th, 1930 in this small village in central Taiwan, which had traditionally been occupied by members of the uh, Sedic tribe. There was an annual track meet where uh, members of the local community in particular members of the Japanese ruling class and many who traveled from other uh, local regions to attend uh, converged uh, at, in this town. And, in the middle of this, actually at the very beginning of this track meet, as the national Japanese national anthem was being played and the flag was ascending up the flagpole, there was a sudden ambush with uh, several hundred members of indigenous groups who attacked the Japanese who were present at this ceremony. And they killed uh, 134 people, 132 were Japanese, two were Han Chinese who were mistakenly killed because they were wearing Uh, Japanese clothing. And so this was, this is in in it, what most people refer to as the Mushai incident refers to this particular violent act that occurred on October 27th. It was particularly noteworthy because 1930, we're already 35 years into the colonial period in Taiwan. And Initially, during the early years, there had been many insurrections. There had been revolts and uh, acts of violence against the Japanese colonial authorities. But by 1930, it had been a long time since there had been any uh, large-scale resistance against the Japanese. And so this really came as a kind of shock to the colonial authorities, that so many years after they thought they had peacefully reconciled and so quote-unquote colonized uh, the 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 residents of Taiwan that such an act of resistance would suddenly occur, and so that was the the and 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 what it spoke to was many years of pent up anger, frustration, uh, feelings of individuals being persecuted, being referred to as second or third class citizens, uh, being. abused and subject to violence. and so much of that had been suppressed and pent up uh, for so long that this act on october twenty seventh could almost be seen as this violent eruption uh, of so many years of of anger.
1: So this is a very shocking, as you mentioned, to the Japanese colonial, Um, regime, and also, I believe, to uh, the uh, Taiwanese people as well. So how did uh, Japan respond to the incident and this kind of violent act of uprising?
0: So Japan's uh, reaction was quite swift, and it was arguably even more brutal than the initial insurrection. So they mobilized a large battalion of forces, estimates of more than 2,000 troops, were sent to this region. Tanks were sent in, airplanes were utilized, spraying internationally prohibited uh, poison gas, a form of kind of mustard gas. Uh, And there was this large military operation where they tried to seek retribution against those who had perpetrated this initial uprising. They also did something um, when they realized that it was, it was quite, quite unusual, which was when they realized that they just didn't have the the local knowledge of the mountains, of the paths, of the, um, the this mountainous terrain, which was very difficult for them to navigate, they started to look for other local indigenous groups that historically had been rivals or had had tensions with the the Tzedek and other groups that perpetrated the initial. Uprising, and they recruited them to basically headhunt the headhunters. And I I mentioned headhunting. I don't think I mentioned that in my initial uh, summary of the incident. That this this group traditionally had been uh, a a tribe that practiced headhunting, and so after that, those 134 individuals were were slaughtered on October 27th. The majority of them were their heads were decapitated, and so. What they did was they started getting the quote-unquote headhunters to headhunt the other headhunters. They got other tribes to go into the mountains to search for those uh, who had committed the acts on October 27th, hunt them down and kill them. And so uh, this opened up a whole other dimension in the aftermath of the Musha incident. And Japan uh, kind of rewarded these other tribes for their participation in in the hunting and killing of these other these other uh, members of the sedic people.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, Japan utilized the different uh, dimension. One is the modern weaponry, and the other is to sort of uh, uh, contact the other indigenous community, and as you said, to headhunt the headhunter that started uh, the Musha incident. And um, before we uh, continue, and uh, I want to sort of uh, return back to earlier about the Musha incident itself, and then you say that this is about this uh, decades of anger, frustration, exploitation that the Sadiq uh, communities that they uh, failed, and then can you say a little bit about what led to that anger and frustration that eventually. Led to the Musha incident.
0: So there are multiple factors here. Uh, some of them short-term factors, kind of incidents that really lit lit the flame in the immediate immediately preceding the incident, and others are much long longer term that had been festering for for years, maybe even more than a decade before that period of time. They include such policies as encouraging local. Uh, encouraging Japanese soldiers to marry uh, indigenous women, and that created a lot of strife and uh, ill feelings among among members of the Sedek people. Especially when, after marriage took place, sometimes these Japanese officials would abandon their Sedek uh, wives, and so there was uh, this issue that which also spoke to. Uh, gender issues. I think the masculinity on, of a lot of the Tzedek men was under attack in, in a sense, because so many of the markers of what it means to be a, a man uh, in their in their world were kind of ripped apart from them. So th- to give you some examples, uh, they were basically a, a hunter. They, they, they're men were expected to hunt and women were expected to knit and do fabric work. Those were kind of two of their, the roles that their traditional society had assigned them. And under the Japanese, uh, they were encouraged not to hunt as much and to spend more of their time on agriculture. And, uh, that way tying them to the land in a way that they had not previously been, been tied to. Uh, they also would confiscate firearms. They, uh, and, and part of also their headhunting rituals was that after you had successfully completed a headhunt, men were it was acknowledged through a ritual of facial tattooing. Um, the headhunting was suppressed, and thus the facial tattooing was also suppressed because you know they're they're linked uh, very closely with one another, and those were markers of kind of a, a man coming of age. These were. Uh, coming-of-age rights, and all of that was taken away uh, or prohibited under the Japanese. And so I think in a deep psychological sense, it created an almost crisis of their traditional culture, of their traditional notions of gender roles, and all of that was supplanted by so-called civilized uh, education and actions that the Japanese were introducing. So all of this uh, over time was percolating. It was uh, creating a lot of tensions, and then there were just you know daily acts of insults and, and violence, and uh, the exploitation of labor, the decimation of their local environment and their forests, the cutting down of trees to build structures for the Japanese colonizers, um, and so a lot. And then I think one one specific incident that occurred just before. The October 27th uh, Musha incident was had to do with the leader of the rebellion. His name was Mona Luda. And Mona Luda's son uh, was participating in a wedding ceremony. And he offered a Japanese official some wine to celebrate. And during the, the ceremony, they had also been slaughtering pigs and various animals to celebrate. And apparently his hands were sullied with blood from, from these animals. And when he offered the wine to this Japanese official, he was refused because he looked down upon, uh, son for having dirty hands and bloody hands and want to touch this tainted wine. That was looked at as a great, uh, uh insult and offense. And it led to a, I think a minor physical altercation between the two men. Afterwards, Mona Luda actually visited the official to try to apologize and offered him a gift, which was refused. And that, in the eyes of some scholars, was the straw that broke the camel's back after so many years of tensions and uh, conflicts between these two groups. Uh, that was kind of the last straw. And just after that, this, this erupted. But I, I think it's really just one minor. Footnote in a long history of exploitation um, that these members of the Siddic people faced under the Japanese.
1: Yeah, thank you for uh, mentioning this different uh, dimension that eventually uh, led to the Musha incident, the colonial policies, and also the violent interaction, the confrontation between the indigenous community and the Japanese colonizer. And uh, so with that, so we talk about what happened, what is Musha incident and Japan's uh, violent and arguably even more brutal response to the incident. But actually, in historical account, there is also the second Musha incident. So what is the second Musha incident, Michael?
0: Yeah, the second Musha incident, which depending on the political regime and the historical period, it was often marginalized, forgotten, or pushed aside. Um, and so not as many people are aware of the second Musha incident, but a few months after the initial uprising, there had many of the individuals who took place. I, I, hundreds had been killed by the Japanese Uh, others who were not killed actually took part in a mass suicide be out of desperation and feeling there was no other path. And so many of the uh, indigenous warriors who took part uh, ended up taking their own lives. Ultimately the survivors were forcibly exiled um, and they were put in a detention center. And while they were in this detention center, The Japanese basically uh, schemed with and and recruited members of those other indigenous tribes that I mentioned earlier, such as the Toda tribe, to launch an assault on the detention center. And they slaughtered uh, several hundred additional um, SEDEC men. Basically, all men were were killed above a certain age. And extremely brutal, and here, here they were they were all basically concentrated in one location, they were unarmed, and it was a real slaughter and then they decapitated them and then local Japanese officials even uh arranged their heads on the ground and took commemorative photos with their decapitated heads as war trophies out of pride after this second musha incident and I think one of the reasons people don't talk as much about the second musha incident. Especially under, say, during the nationalist period, uh, is simply because uh, the different ways that it's been appropriated by history. And it's if, it, if it's just an indigenous uprising against the Japanese, that's easy for a political party to appropriate as an anti-Japanese patriotic movement. But when you factor in the second Musha incident, when other indigenous individuals are killing fellow tribe members, and it's orchestrated by the Japanese it ter- ethically and in terms of uh, the, the various moral questions that that opens up and the complexity of of what's happening is much messier for a given political party to appropriate and turn into propaganda. And so I think over the years, it's been uh, very much marginalized. But it's it's one of the most tragic uh Kind of footnotes of, of what happened in, in the aftermath.
1: Mm. And then um, you mentioned especially this kind of historical account and narrative and during the na- uh, nationalist period and how that uh, incident is being appropriate or to some degree selected different moment to construct this narrative. So this incident was back in the 1930s. And um, so how was the incident understand and appropriate by different political regimes or movement in modern and contemporary Taiwan?
0: You know, that's a fascinating question. And it's, it's probably really speaks to the core of what the book we we just uh, released really tries to get at, which is this Not just the history of what happened in that moment, but the post history of how the Musha incident has been reimagined, reconstructed, and appropriated by different political regimes and different cultural workers over the years. And that has varied radically depending on the political regime who is in power at any given time. So, under the Japanese, uh, this was held up as the ultimate example to prove the savage nature of taiwan's indigenous population how uncultured they were and how in need they were of being quote-unquote civilized and they needed to be educated and and so uh, that was and, and and that in turn launched a whole new set of colonial policies under the japanese in terms of how to engage with and deal with uh indigenous population and so uh Partly, it's after it's around this period that you start having um, a whole new set of educational policies being introduced and rolled out uh, to indigenous people in Taiwan, and it's so successful um, that within the span of a decade, you have people from the Settak tribe and other local tribes nearby signing up to volunteer for the Japanese Imperial Army to go to Southeast Asia during uh, the Pacific war to fight on behalf of the Japanese. And, and so there's, and that's something Leo Ching has written about, um, in his, uh, his book, becoming Japanese. And that's a fascinating transformation and process and how the group that had been really at the forefront of resisting, uh, Japanese colonial, uh, aggression to becoming, becoming, uh, Kind of servants for that for that very same same power, and so this rat. So it triggers, in some sense, this change of policy, which leads to that radical shift. If we fast forward uh, under the nationalist regime after nineteen forty nine or uh, nineteen forty five, but you're really uh, kind of kid- k- kicking into high gear after nineteen forty nine in the early fifties, you start has to start to see the Musha incident being held up as a great model of resistance against the Japanese having just come out of the um Sino-J- second Sino-Japanese war the KMT actually tries to co-opt what happened in 1930 into the long Chinese history of resistance against the Japanese in fact there was even a book series published in Taiwan around this time in the 1950s or 60s uh there was a set about uh these kind of you know heroic national martyrs and heroes who had, you know, done so much for the nation. And it was a book series where each monograph, um, was devoted to a different, uh, kind of historical fury of, uh, a different historical figure associated with patriotism towards the nation. So there's a volume on Chuyuan, there's a volume on Sun Yat-sen and, uh, various kind of May 4th era, uh patriotic intellectuals. And in that series, there's actually a volume on Mona Ludao. <laughs> actually, but they don't, they don't, all of the, all of the books in the series are named for individuals, but the one on Mona Ludao is actually just called the Usha Shijian, the Musha incident, as if somehow as an indigenous person, he's not worthy of having his name instilled among the others. Uh, but the incident itself was certainly looked at within this, long history or pulled into twisted into this long history of patriotism for um for china and the chinese state even though i would it's very dubious what understanding or connection or affiliation munaludao ever had with notions of the so-called you know chinese state or Hanzu history and that uh uh, and so it, it's very interesting the way, though, it was pushed in into that lineage. And then if we fast forward again to the period uh, under Chen Shui-bian, that you start to see with the rise of pro-Taiwan independence political policies, the Musha incident is morphed yet again. And what happens is as you start getting more and more people in Taiwan, especially uh people in politics that have an invested interest in highlighting uh, how Taiwan is different from mainland China. There's this urge to find uh, and accentuate the local um, indigenous roots as a way to, because this is something that they don't have in mainland China, right? This kind of indigenous uh, culture like you have uh, of the SEDEC and other groups. And so you start to see a reevaluation and uh, a newfound attention to indigenous Cultures, which under the nationalist regime were still largely marginalized. And uh, I think many, many indigenous peoples felt they were really treated as second class citizens under the KMT. And yet suddenly you have this radical shift. And if you went to uh, Taoyuan International Airport, there would be a whole exhibition about indigenous culture. There were indigenous festivals. There were also a lot of positive things like the... uh, outpouring of funds and money into indigenous communities to rebuild schools and build hospitals and create infrastructure and really give them uh, tools that they really didn't have under the nationalist regime and certainly they didn't have under the Japanese. Um, So there are good parts to this, but there's also negative parts. And I see uh, the way in which aspects of the Musha incident were kind of appropriated to serve political agendas to accentuate uh, independence-minded policies is yet another way in which this history has been twisted and 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 morphed into something that it had nothing to do with, you know, initially.
1: Yeah. So this uh, incident, indigenous uprising in the 1930s, and then, as you mentioned, through the three different political regime in the Japanese colonial time, this led to the change of policy of the so-called civilization. So focus more on the education and also the indoctrination side. But later on in Nationalist, um, and thank you for the example about the uh, collection that you mentioned. So this is about basically to sort of uh, connect this uprising as a model of the anti-Japan. And then also to think about the so-called chinese of the island of Taiwan. But later on, very interestingly, in the uh, later, around 2000, 2010s, the uh, localist and also nativists and also those pro-Taiwan independents, they are looking for and then rediscovering the unique taiwanese and then how they approach this incident, um, very different from the Japanese colonizer and the nationalist ruler as well. So, um, um, That's why this uh, incident and the historical account, cultural text about this is so complex and also so uh, interesting, if not um, interestingly problematic as well. So we see this three different uh, political interpretation and understanding about the Musha incident. And the winner, the people who have power, they write history and provide Uh, the narrative that can support their political agenda. But I was wondering, can you talk about what is the indigenous knowledge, their memory, and also their perspective of this incident that is being marginalized or maybe erased in these different political narratives about the incident?
0: Yeah, that's a really important question. And just as... You have the second Musha incident as this tragic footnote aftermath to the initial uprising. Another equally tragic and devastating uh, aftermath is the fact that those indigenous voices have largely been silenced over this long history of appropriation and representation that I've been talking about. And so just now I gave that overview of during the colonial period, during the nationalists, during the... um, you know the current regime and and how how it's changed. The one big gaping black hole is how local indigenous members of the SETIC community have approached this themselves and how they've tried to make peace with the past and come to terms with it. And there are reasons why those holes exist. On the one hand, uh, their culture is not one based on written. Uh, transmission of texts. And so it's very much an oral history culture of storytelling and legends and myths. And, uh, you know, there were, there was no written text for, for their language. So uh, that resulted in there really not being a written record or, you know, people often talk about how, you know, history is written by the victors, but it's also written by those who are able to write history. And, and so that, that combination of, one, being marginalized, and two, not having uh, the kind of platform to tell their story meant that for so many decades, uh, you were not getting that, that perspective. It's really not until the 1990s and into the 2000s that you start getting a new generation of indigenous scholars Um, people like Dakis Pawan, uh, who start to publish books about the Musha incident, who start to conduct oral history projects. Um, And and now there's several very good oral history projects that have been published about the Musha incident um, by by local indigenous scholars who are members of that community. Unfortunately, because of the time, you know, how many years have passed, we're now, we just passed the 90th anniversary uh, anniversary. of, of what happened that means that the majority now of people who have a real living memory of what happened are no longer with us but thankfully you know starting around you know in the 80s and 90s there there were some oral histories carried out with with people who did remember what happened so we are starting to see those come about um but if we look at especially cultural discourse uh, that is novels and films uh the indigenous perspective is often uh absent there and and maybe i to, to fill this gap a little bit i'm going to read a, a short quote from dacus Pawan this is actually the epigraph of our edited volume and i think his voice is important to accentuate he he attended uh the conference that this that resulted in this book and unfortunately he passed away about a year ago and as a kind of tribute to dacus i i would like to maybe read a few of his words about the indigenous perspective if that's okay We have so few opportunities to speak out, and the fact that so many of our elders are now gone makes it even more difficult. Moreover, the elders only spoke our native tribal language, so in the past it was extremely difficult to find anyone to translate what they said. If we continue using the perspective of, quote, the great China or the great Taiwan to look at indigenous people, I'm afraid you will never see our real history, humanity, and culture. It really doesn't matter what methods you use to prevent the history of the Musha inc- to present the history of the Musha incident that our ancestors experienced. It doesn't matter if it's an essay, a graphic novel, a speech, a book, or a critical study. As far as we are concerned, our wounds are already formed they have formed a thick scab, and yet each time someone scratches at the wound, it is certain that we will sometimes still feel the pain. As far as I'm concerned, I can take the pain, but what I really hope even though I do sometimes try to resist the pain, we must let people know about the history that transpired here. And, and so I think that's why it's, it's really important to include voices like Dacus and other indigenous scholars when we're, uh, when we're trying to think about and reflect and approach it also with a, you know, you, you need to also have a real sense of sensitivity because If you know anything about this history, you know about the way in which the representation and the academic approach to it has also been a form of injustice that's been committed through that act. And so that's something I tried to be very self-conscious of as I was uh, working on this project to be as respectful as possible uh, to those indigenous voices and really highlight uh, the, the, the challenges of approaching a project like this.
1: Thank you for, uh, especially for reading that passage from Dark East Part One. And uh, for our listeners, if you are uh, interested to know more, um, um, actually earlier um, to uh, in 2021, November, uh, I also have an interview with Daryl Sturg about his book, Indigenous Cultural Translation, A fake Description of Sadiq Ballet, where uh, Daryl talking about the... Um, the uh, uh, production of the film Sadiq Ballet about the Musha incident, but also um, his work of translating and then working with a different uh, translator and different individuals from the uh, Sadiq uh, community. So with that, um, I just want to mention that if you want to know more about the, um, as Michael, you mentioned this, uh, who write history, and also how to write history. As you mentioned, um, the Sadiq uh, tradition uh, is the oral tradition, and then thinking about how to tell the story and how to write the story as well. So um, thank you for uh, sharing that passage again. So we talk about the incident, and we talk about the different historical narrative and also political agenda to understand that incident and um, we are interested in how you encounter the musha incident
0: so for me it was actually through the lens of fiction um, a lot of people maybe think of fiction as frivolous and maybe <laughs> even question uh, the role that it can play but uh, I, over the years I've done a lot of projects related to the musha incident i i have a, a large chapter in a book I wrote called The History of Pain uh, about the Musha incident. There's the, the current edited collection, and there's also a novel that I, I translate. And all of this came from the fact that back when I was a graduate student, I had read a, a novel called uh, Yusheng or Remains of Life by a Taiwan writer named Wu He. And I was just so struck and shocked and, uh, moved and disturbed by what I was reading it pulled me in and it drove me to dig deeper and to understand the historical context of this world that he was that was unfolding before my eyes as I read that novel and I don't think I could have ever anticipated that that single novel would lead me to spend a good portion of my academic career over the years devoted to projects that are Looking at and excavating kind of the hidden history of the uh, Musha incident. And so so much of it really came from that 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 first um, that reading that novel as a graduate student.
1: Yeah, so uh, from uh, reading of the novel and but you also visited where it was originally the Musha um, uh, the location of the Musha incident, right?
0: Yes, I uh, visited multiple times. And and I, you know, there, I think back then I was translating uh, Uha's novel. And there there's some translations where just having an engagement with the text is enough. You don't feel like you need to go to the place. But for some reason, this was a project where I really felt it was necessary that I go to, to that place and really get a, a visual sense of what, what it felt like and how who the people were and how they talked, how they, talk, they looked, how they, and 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 just learn more because it was such a different kind of reality that um was had had been presented throughout that that novel. So, I was fortunate. Um, this is probably twenty years ago. The first time I went to uh, Usha, and Uhu actually accompanied me, and so we spent many days uh, both in Usha and in Chuanzhong Zhongdao. Dao is the Site of exile, where the survivors uh, of the from the sedic tribe who participated in the uprising were forcibly exiled to this village, uh, many miles away from from Usha, and we uh, visited that that place as well. That's also where Uhe, uh spent his time when he was writing this this novel, and so. Uh, that really provided a completely different perspective on the history and the culture and the people. And I got to know uh, a lot of local individuals there, including uh, some of the characters who appear in the novel. Um, they were they're were all based on actual actual people. And so I was able to meet them and and then over the years, I went back several more times on research trips and got to see the transformation of, of uh, of that village and and the in many ways very very radical changes taking place the physical transformation, houses being rebuilt new schools being built a museum to uh, dedicated to the survivors and the descendants of of the incident of 1930 was built uh, one of on the in one, one time i went back and was shocked to discover at the at the entrance to the village, a massive, probably 30, 40 foot tall mosaic of Munaluda, which had suddenly appeared uh, at the entrance of the village. And so uh, seeing that transformation was also uh, important important to to kind of witness. Uh, There was also after the production of Wei Da Sheng's film about the incident, that also kind of led to a whole revitalization of the area and it became a tourist hotspot. And and so, um, yeah, I think it was this. This was a an important part. What it was to actually go there, not just once, but multiple times, to talk to people, and to get a, a different a different perspective on what, what really happened.
1: Yeah, this kind of like transformation, and as you mentioned, like this radical transformation about the landscape on the site as well. So from uh, reading the novel and then translating the novel, and eventually you have the on-site visit. So, um, so how do you start this book project, and then uh, what's the uh, goal for this book project?
0: So. Having translated the novel and also written a pretty significant chapter that chronicled the various attempts to recreate uh, the Musha incident in the realm of literature and film, you know, I had done a lot of work on this in terms of my own research, but I still felt it was very much lacking. And one of the reasons was my own limitations. In that is, this is a a complex incident that involves different cultures. Different peoples, different languages. Um, you know, there's been a lot written in Japanese about it. There's been a lot in Chinese. Uh, and increasingly, there's a lot of indigenous um, perspectives that are coming out. And I don't have all of the language abilities. I also don't have all of the training in, say, uh, linguistics or in social anthropology and philosophy and uh, indigenous studies. I mean, there's a lot of I think, uh, specialized fields that you need to bring into the fold to really do this incident justice and to approach it from a more nuanced, complex uh, perspective that's really going to shine a light on not, you can never capture all of the complexities, but at least uh, show how many different levels there are to, uh, and how many different challenges there are to really portraying this in in a way with that has dignity, and does justice to to what happened. And so I thought the probably the best way was to assemble a team of scholars from countries around the world, some who speak sedic language, some who um, have a background in his history and are more traditional historians, others are cultural studies scholars, um, and... Um, This was this was more than probably any other project I worked on, a project that called for that kind of interdisciplinary collaborative approach. And so it started in 2017 with an international conference at UCLA on the Musha incident. I think it was the title of the conference was Musha 1930: History, Memory, and Culture, I believe. And that was that kind of sowed the seeds for the later publications which spun out of it. And it began in 2020 with a Chinese language version. Of the book, uh, which was titled "The Musha Incident," a reader in Taiwan history and culture, and then that was followed up two years later with the English version of the project. Um, and they're they're very different. And I mean, the, the Chinese language version of this book is about double the length of the English version, so it cre- it contains a lot more material, and um, we were just able to do that due to the you know different. Uh, (laughs) different, different, I guess, regulations that the various publishers had in terms of word, word length and such.
1: Yeah. And then, um, definitely uh, recommend our uh, listener to check it out, the uh, Chinese version of this book, So if you're interested in checking out the Chinese language materials or to recommend it for your Mandarin-speaking friends and colleagues. so uh, as Michael mentioned, uh, it's um, um, it's um, Uh, longer than the English uh, book that we're discussing right now. So there are uh, different chapters and um, interviews or so, but for the English version itself, already very rich, as you mentioned, this interdisciplinary um, perspective and scholars and approaching from different sides. So can you tell us about the uh, The overview for the four parts of this book?
0: Sure. Um, So part one is historical memories of Musha, and it contains three chapters by historians. And they're kind of collectively unpacking uh, not only the history of what happened during the incident and the second Musha incident, but I think very importantly, there's a few chapters, at least two chapters there that spend a lot of time talking about the Gaia-Japanese relations and the burgeoning, the tensions that were percolating and building up as we uh, approached what happened in 1930. And so I think that kind of contextualization to go back earlier in history, and earlier you had asked about you know what caused it, and I gave you a, a fairly short answer, but those chapters give you a much deeper and nuanced understanding of the tensions that had been gradually building up and other incidents that had occurred between uh, the Sek or in the tagaya but with the Japanese as we're getting closer and closer to 1930 and so I think those are really important for understanding uh, the prehistory of the musha incident and then there's also a, a chapter by Kate Kitamura who uh, tries to approach the historiography from an indigenous perspective and looking at uh, the role of indigenous voices in tracing this history. Uh, part two uh, is entitled literary member, literary memories of Musha. And there are four chapters there um, by some really incredible scholars who are offering close reading and analysis of several short stories and novels by both Chinese and Japanese writers who have tried to imagine Appropriate or objectify, and, and and they they take different um, different perspectives in each of each of these novelists, and some of them I think are extremely sensitive to the history. Others are written during a different time and a different era. Um, and they reinforce maybe some of the longstanding stereotypes and prejudices that have been in place. But I think they're equally important for us to understand how this history has been transmitted and performed by generations of writers and readers and uh, over the years. And so that's the second section. And then part three is entitled Visual and Digital Memories of Musha. There are three chapters And here we're kind of moving into the age of film, documentary film, and the internet, and looking at um, how the Musha incident was portrayed in the big blockbuster, uh, Balai*, which was probably the single most influential representation of the Musha incident in in history. It became uh, one of the most profitable films in Taiwan box office history. Um, It was distributed widely to countries around the world. And we have a chapter actually by an indigenous scholar who takes a somewhat critical perspective on the film. Uh, we also have a chapter by Daryl Stark, who you mentioned earlier, who does a comparative reading of Remains of Life, the novel with uh, a documentary film with actually the same title, also *Yusheng* in in Chinese. And then finally, There is a chapter by Chou Guifun, a uh, senior scholar in Taiwan, who looks at how the Musha incident has been reimagined in the age of not only the internet, but wiki writing, and how various digital platforms have curated the memory of the Musha incident. And finally, there is a fourth section entitled Musha and Cultural Dialogue, and this is four short chapters, each of which contains an interview with a Major kind of cultural creator, uh, film, and and they each one spans a different genre, and so we have a novelist, a musician, uh, a television director, and a film director, each of whom have produced a major work that attempts to approach the Musha incident, and so among them are is Wu he, the author of Remains of Life, uh, Wei Dusheng, the director of uh, Saida Kabbalah, that the big budget film. And even uh, Freddie Lim, who is a politician in Taiwan, but he's also known as the leader of Taiwan's kind of leading uh, heavy metal band, Thonic. And they actually released a concept album about a decade ago, also called uh, Sada Kabbalah. And it's basically a, a full length heavy metal album that uh, retells the story of the Bushai incident. And so we have an interview with Freddie Lim as well.
1: All right. Thank you for this overview and also the highlights of the session and also the uh, chapters as well. And then uh, definitely recommend everybody to check out uh, Freddie Lin's heavy metal music. And um, even if you might not necessarily be a fan of the uh, heavy metal, but I guess it will be interesting to see how um, from... Music and also from melody to sort of uh, sing about this part of history and also the Musha incident as well.
0: Yeah, and actually, one, you know, one thing that's really interesting about Freddie Ling's mm-hmm. uh, portrayal and Pathonic's portrayal is that the, the incident has often, as we talked about, it's been twisted into very fit in the different political lines. But in indigenous culture, it's often. There's a rich history of storytelling of mythology in uh, the Sedaq culture, and phonics rendering actually tries to put it into that kind of a context. And so, there's a heavy, in, uh, heavy influence of myth, of storytelling, uh, oral history. They even use some lyrics in the Sedaq language, and so, of course, it's still a, yet another form of appropriation. Uh, Freddie is, after all, a politician, um, but. It, it's quite interesting in the, the lengths that they went to try to bring in elements of uh, traditional ascetic myth and culture into into their rendering of it.
1: Yeah, so we talk about um, historical records, we talk about novels, films, documentary, and also now I uh, talk about music, um, specifically uh, heavy metal. And so now um, I would like to... Um, sort of uh, focus and feature one of the novel that Michael yourself read earlier when you're in graduate study and later on uh, have uh, translated as well. So this book is Remains of Life. This was written by Wu He and translated by Michael. This was published by Columbia University Press in 2017. And this book is about Muxia Incident. And Michael, can you tell us a little bit uh, briefly about the um, novel itself, and then maybe also read passage 102 from there?
0: Sure. So the novel, um, as you mentioned, published in 1999, is semi-autobiographical. And the, the novelist Wu He actually has spent many, many portions of his life in the area around Wusha, where where this uprising took place. In fact, during his, uh, after college, when he went to military service, he was stationed very close to that area. I mean, during one of our trips to Musha together, he told me how we went to the tomb of, of uh, Monaruda, where, where his, his remains are interred. And I remember sitting up there on the hill, overlooking Monaruda's tomb. And, Uh, uh, told me how as a young cadet in the army, he would climb up this hill whenever he had a break, um, like on weekends. And he would come up here and just sit there, stare at the beautiful trees and the environment and kind of ponder what happened there, you know, decades earlier. And so it's a novel that had been sitting with Uh, for, many, many years. And he had been thinking about this and working through the ideas. And eventually he spent an extended period on and off for about two years living there. He rented a place in Tranjong Dal, the, the site of exile. And while he was there, he was working on this novel. And it, he takes a contemporary perspective and has this, and, and throughout the, the novel, there's this strong thrust, uh, almost a philosophical stance that you can never tell. There's, there is no history outside the so-called contemporary history. We can never step out of our contemporary perspective and our point of view. And so all history is a contemporary history. And it says as much about us today and the here and now as it does about that past history. And so he really embraces that stance. And and throughout the narrative, you have this intertwining of his reflections, fantasies, maniacal ra- ramblings about what happened uh, all those years ago, which is conflated with his own experience wandering and walking and exploring uh, this, this place so many decades later and the people he meets and this, the so-called remains of life. That is the survivors and the descendants of the survivors and exploring on many different levels the post-traumatic after effects and the shadow of violence that they've lived in ever since. Uh, what happened in 1930 played out, and that kind of violence is manifested um, not just in various forms of marginalization, but uh, exploitation. The way so many women from that region have been forced into uh, into the sex work industry, so many men have been forced into very low paying manual labor jobs, where they're forced to basically, for both of them, use the capital of their bodies uh, to to get by and denied educational opportunities that so many Han Chinese would be uh, granted and uh, and so you, you really get a sense of this unfolding and perpetuating tragedy that has gone on for so long. The novel is also written in a highly unconventional style. it's a stream of consciousness style and so there are no paragraph breaks there are limited, Periods that appear throughout the novel. There's unconventional use of grammar, unconventional use of uh, other other punctuation marks throughout the book, and so it was a real challenge as a translator. Probably the hardest thing I've ever had to approach as a translator, and that's also why uh, it took long. It took me more than a decade to to complete this translation, and I worked on it on and off, on and off for for, for quite some time. And so maybe to give you a little bit of a sense of those challenges, I'll read you just the first sentence of the book. And sentence is going to be a little misleading because like I said, it doesn't use conventional grammar. Remains of Life. The first time I read about the Musha incident was probably back when I was still a teenager. The white terror had passed, giving rise to the simple and gray 60s. The economy of this island nation had yet to take off, there were still no McDonald's fast food restaurants, and we had yet to be bombarded by electronics, computers, and the mass media. We had more than ample time to carefully read, whatever we could get our hands on. In one book, I read about a brutal and bloody incident that occurred on a mountain called Musha. At the time, traces of the trepidation and shock that marked my hot-blooded teenage years still clung to me up until I read a book on the history of social and political movements among Taiwan's ethnic minorities. Only then did I realize that it happened more than a decade after everyone down in the plains had given up any form of armed resistance against their colonizers. The decision to stop resisting must have been the outcome of comprehensive deliberation, wherein they were, in the end, left with no other choice. But didn't this information make it to the aborigines living in the mountains? I was forced into the army to carry out my term of obligatory military service when I was 28 and had yet to get through all the Confucian classics required for college. For the time, I clearly felt that on the land there existed such a thing as a nation, an entity in which a system of authority and power is embodied in and transformed into a system of violence that invisibly controls the heart and resources of this island nation. I look back on the artistic days of my youth as nothing more than a kind of mildly insane romanticism. I was discharged from the military in 1981. At the time, I came to the painful realization that I had been castrated by the army. I decided not to immediately jump into the flames of anti-nationalist political activities. Instead, I moved moved to Dantre, a small town on the margins of this island country where I lived in quiet seclusion. I spent all my time lost in historical and philosophical works. I wanted to understand the origins and meanings of concepts like the army and the nation. Finally, after months in solitude, reading about countless battles and the illusions about war fostered by the history textbooks I had read as a youth, they all melted away, transforming into a true historical reality. It was perhaps then that my mind first turned to the blood spilled in our mountains I settled down from the hot-blooded excitement of my younger days and began to contemplate the legitimacy and appropriateness of the Musha incident. So that's the first sentence. <laughs>
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this was certainly a complex, but also equally uh, fascinating text. And also, Michael, I want to thank you for your beautiful translation of the novel. This sounds a very challenging um, project, but certainly you uh, did it beautifully and also uh, uh, wonderfully. So uh, with Wu uh, a novel, Yu or Remand of Life. And um, we also uh, previously talked about, for example, Wei De uh, film, Sadiq Ballet. So, Michael, do you have any recommendation uh, for novels, films, or any other uh, cultural text about the Musha incident that you will recommend to our readers?
0: I think if you're Dealing with English language materials uh, remains of life. Um, I hate to self-promote, but I will. <laughs> in this case, uh, it's 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 a novel that, uh, in some ways, I feel it never really got its just due. It's it's really an incredibly powerful uh, and singular work. It's unlike anything I've ever translated, and uh, it's a haunting, disturbing, uh, tragic. It's it's I, I just. Um, uh, not too long ago, my my son, who's now eleven years old, asked me of all the books I've worked on, which one am I most proud of? And for some reason, almost without hesitation, I said "Remains of Life." It's it's always been had a really special place in my heart, and so um, I, I, I'll mention that. Uh, Wei Da film is, of course, probably the single most um, influential work in terms of uh, mainstream cinema. So definitely, that's important to see. Um, Tang Xiangzhu has a a documentary film that I mentioned earlier, also called Remains of Life, uh, Yusheng in Chinese, uh, which is, I think, definitely worth viewing if you can find it and get your hands on it. If you're a Chinese reader, uh, Chiu Rolong has a graphic novel, which has been extremely influential. It's actually when you uh, talk about cultural workers who have written poems and written novels and... um, Approach this, you know, and from television, from all different perspectives. And you ask them, "What was? How did you learn about the Musha incident?" Many of them will say, "The first thing I saw was Chou Along's graphic novel." And so I think that's a, that's an important work to understanding this history of representation. And and I look forward in the future to hopefully there being more uh, works by members of the Setic community who are um, talking about their own history and their own culture and. And, and having more more work that highlight that, that perspective, I think, is really essential as we move forward.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Michael, with this uh, book published this year, so uh, what's your next project or what are you working on right now?
0: You know, I'm always, sometimes I feel like I'm more a juggler than anything else because I juggle different projects. Uh, if you look at my work, In general, they usually fall into three categories, which are literary translations, oral history projects, and original scholarship. And so I've had, over the course of the pandemic, a couple works in each of those categories that I've been working on. Uh, In terms of literary translation, uh, there are two novels by Fang Fang that I have completed over the course of the pandemic, which uh, hopefully we'll find a publisher for soon. One is called A Soft Burial. The other is called The Running Flame. Um, there's a sci-fi trilogy by a mainland Chinese writer named Hansong uh, called The Hospital Trilogy. And volume one is complete and that's coming out soon. And I'm currently actually translating volume two. Um in terms of oral history projects. Um over the years I've I've done a series of book-length dialogues with various filmmakers. And actually that's kind of the tip of the iceberg, because for over 20 years I've been working on this oral history project of doing interviews, dialogues with various Chinese writers, filmmakers, artists. And I recently signed a multi-book agreement with uh, Xiu Wei in Taiwan, who are doing a series of books that are bringing out all of these unpublished interviews. And so the first two volumes are out, and there's a few more that are coming. And so that's really exciting and gratifying to see that uh, these voices from so many artists and writers Uh, that we've been documenting are are kind of seeing the light of day after all this time. And then finally, I have a project, uh, an academic monograph, which chronicles the disinformation campaign surrounding Fang Fang's Wuhan diary, which is uh, hopefully coming out sometime in the next year or so.
1: sounds very busy <laughs> and uh, but um, they all sounds a uh, great project and especially you mentioned they are different dimension different trajectories and uh, we're looking forward to reading more from you your literary translation uh, your interviews and also your um, academic uh, monograph as well and also in both languages uh, in english and also chinese as well
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today.
1: Yeah. So uh, Michael, thank you again for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. And uh, again, looking forward to uh, reading more from you. And uh, I also want to thank our listener today for listening to the end. And I hope everybody's staying safe and taking good care. We will see you next time. Goodbye.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you.